0: This is GM Word of the Week and I'm Fiddleback. Iocane. We here at the Word of the Week are gamers, which we may have mentioned once or twice. Specifically, we're tabletop role-playing gamers. And we're what we politely refer to as tabletop role-playing gamers of a certain age because we don't like to be reminded of our own increasingly dwindling mortality. And that made the discussion of Memento Mori in our last episode particularly troubling. As you'll hopefully recall, a Memento Mori is a depiction of a skull and crossed bones that is meant to remind the viewer that they are, in fact, mortal. Now, even with the increasing popularity of role-playing games our favorite hobby remains something of a niche pastime. And because these games can only be played with friends, we have always struggled, like most gamers, to identify other like-minded hobbyists out in the wild. Because unfortunately, gamers don't wear signs. They aren't marked with an identifying symbol. A warning label, if you will. But as gamers of a certain age we do know that there are actually a few ways to identify a gamer, especially a gamer of a certain age. And we probably inadvertently triggered just such an identifier in our last episode when we repeatedly said, you are mortal. Because most gamers of a certain age can't hear any reminder of their own mortality without immediately saying out loud or at least thinking in their head, So you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. It's kind of like making any remark about witches. If there's a gamer around, they're going to shout, She turned me into a newt! I got better. See, back in the day, you couldn't be a tabletop gamer without being able to quote a minimum number of lines from certain movies or television shows or books or whatever. And spouting off those quotes was the way you advertised to the world that you were a gamer. But that was then. Because sadly, not all gamers these days are grounded in the classics, which is inconceivable. Moreover, These days, movies like The Princess Bride are much more popular than they ever used to be, so non gamers can happily spout off at least a few quotes and recognize some references. Now, we're bringing up The Princess Bride for two reasons related to our previous episode. First, because as we typed up the script for that episode, We constantly heard Wallace Shawn's remarks about mortality every time we typed the word. And second, because that whole scene, and we promise we'll explain the scene to the non-initiated in a moment, the whole scene being referenced is centered around something that should also be marked with a skull and crossed bones. Something that's often a staple of fantasy adventure. We're talking, of course, about poisons and also venoms, and toxins. And how people get those words confused, but one thing at a time. The Princess Bride. Most people know The Princess Bride as a 1987 feature film directed by Rob Reiner and starring Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin and Andre the Giant and Sean Wallace and Peter Falk and Fred Savage and Billy Crystal and so on and so on and so on. A romantic fantasy comedy adventure featuring fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. And these days, it's a very popular film. But back in 1987, it really wasn't. It almost didn't get made at all. In fact, it was thought to be impossible to make. Oh, and it also didn't start life as a film. See, The Princess Bride is based on a 1973 novel by American novelist and screenwriter William Goldman, who, sadly, passed away in November of 2018. Now, Goldman was a decent novelist, though he had his troubles getting some of his books published. Things really took off for him once he started doing screenplay work. He was hired to touch up a few film scripts while he continued to work on his novels, which he continued to struggle with then he wrote the screenplay for the classic American Western Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he won an Academy Award for it. Best Original Screenplay. And that kind of cemented his place as a writer. And then in 1973 his daughters, aged four and seven asked him to write a story for them. He asked them what it should be about. One said a princess The other said a bride. And that was that. Now, you might not be surprised to learn that The Princess Bride is based on a book that a father figure shared with his young children. Because although the film is a fantasy adventure, it has this framing device about a grandfather reading his sick grandson a book. The book. The Princess Bride. So it makes sense that the film would be about the book. But the film isn't about the novel The Princess Bride. Technically, the film is an adaptation of the novel The Princess Bride, which itself is also about the book The Princess Bride, a fictional book by a verbose author from a European country who seems to have some similarities to Victorian-era authors like Victor Hugo. And it even parodies old, dense, classic stories that no one would ever read unabridged. Seriously, have you ever tried to read the unabridged version of Les Miserables? Or the Hunchback of Notre Dame? They're awful. They're full of dense political discussions and social critiques and long essays about the nature of the church or convents and even... And we're not making this up. Multi-page descriptions of human waste piling up in the gutters of the streets of Paris. See, in the novel The Princess Bride the narrator is reminiscing about how his father used to read him this book whenever he got sick. And as an adult, he sought out a copy of the book and he discovered that his father was only reading him the good parts. Because interwoven with the exciting fantasy adventure romance were all sorts of dense social and political Hugo-esque critiques. And so the framing device of the book is that the adult narrator is retelling the story that his father used to tell him and interjecting all sorts of interruptions that he remembers from his childhood and also footnotes and annotations describing the utterly unreadable original version of the book. It's a great read. Fantastic. And the book was a great success. And Goldman saw the potential immediately for a movie. So he set about adapting the book to a screenplay. He wrote the script and tried to sell it, and there was a lot of interest. And this was all still in 1973. And several different directors and producers all tried to make the film. Big names for the time. Francois Truffaut, a renowned Academy Award-winning French director. He tried to make it. And Norman Jewison, who produced such greats as the Thomas Crown Affair and the film adaptation of Jesus Christ Superstar. And Robert Redford was involved at one point. And the film just didn't work. And the studios kept cutting the budgets as a result. And in the end, it was decreed by everyone in Hollywood that the film was unmakeable. Meanwhile, Rob Reiner In the 1980s, Rob Reiner went from television and film acting to directing. And out of the gate, his directing chops were impressive. He directed the successful spoof documentary, This Is Spinal Tap, in 1984. In 1986, he directed Stand By Me, for which he was nominated for several awards and received great critical acclaim. And he'd hit the level of directorial acclaim required that he could pick his next project. That is to say, he could make the film he wanted to make instead of the film the studio wanted to hire him to make. And he had an idea for a film based on a book he'd loved. A book that his father had shared with him. A book that his father had been given by the author himself. William Goldman's The Princess Bride. Reiner wanted to make it. And then he discovered that it had already been languishing in the graveyard of unmakeable films for over a decade. The production faced numerous struggles. They had a hard time casting some roles, but the casting was made easier by the fact that the book was well-known and well-loved. Cary Elwes, for example had loved the book since he'd first read it as a teenager. He was happy to star in it. Production faced numerous issues. Elvis was injured during the filming and had to act through a lot of the film with a fractured ankle. Andre the Giant, who played the giant Fezzik, he couldn't learn to pronounce his lines. His English diction was terrible. Ultimately, Reiner had to record all of Andre's lines on audio cassette so Andre could listen to them, and parrot them back. And the studio, still nervous about previous failed attempts to make the film, just kept cutting the budget. But in the end, the film did get made. And it was well-liked by critics, and people thought it was... okay. It made back its by then meager budget of $16 million, and made another $15 million on top of that but it was far from a commercial success. It wasn't until many years later, with video and then DVD releases and then propagation through the internet, that it became the cult classic it is today. But it was one of those movies every gamer saw and every gamer could quote. Which brings us to the famous battle of wits scene where Wallace Shawn, playing a villainous Sicilian who thinks he's far smarter than he actually is, and Carrie Elwes as the mysterious man in black, at least at the time, engage in a contest to determine the fate of Princess Buttercup. Two goblets are placed on the table. One has been dosed with a deadly poison, Iocane powder. Shawn's character has to decide which goblet he'll drink from, and which one Elwes must drink from. After a dizzying back and forth of ludicrous moon-logic banter stalling and shenanigans, both characters drink, and the contest is resolved. Now that scene raises two questions. Is there really a poison called Iocane? And is it really possible to build up an immunity to a certain poison by dosing yourself with it regularly? because one of the characters claims to have done just that to make himself immune to Iocane. The first answer is no. There is no such thing as Iocane. It's made up. The second is, it depends on the poison. Just ask King Mithridates Sixth of Pontus. But you can't, because he died in 63 BCE of failing to poison himself. So let's talk poisons. A poison is a substance that can be absorbed into the body and causes physiological harm or damage or death. And if we're being pedantic, and we always are, we have to point out that the key word here is absorbed. The poison has to get into the body across the lining of the digestive tract or the mucous membranes that line the respiratory tract. In other words, you have to eat it or breathe it. If it's injected into the bloodstream directly, it's a venom. And if it's produced inside the body by a metabolic process, say some bacteria or parasite or by the body itself, that's a toxin. So most animals that people call poisonous, snakes and spiders and the like, are actually venomous. They inject venom. But some animals, like certain frogs whose skin exudes dangerous substances that can be absorbed if you touch them or lick them, and many plants, are poisonous. But we digress. And for simplicity, we're just going to use the broad word poison for all of this stuff. Poisons have been a part of human history for pretty much all of human history. Archaeological evidence suggests that some ancient weapons, dating back as far as 4500 BCE or even earlier, were designed to deliver poison. There are telltale grooves and slots and arrowheads and spearheads which would be treated with a poisonous substance so that, if a hunter's attack wasn't itself immediately deadly, the animal would still be brought down by the poison. So, pretty much from the time the first man ate the first bad berry... Humans recognized pretty early on that some substances that came from some animals and plants were deadly dangerous. And as soon as they noticed that, they started to think about how they could use those substances to get ahead. Thus, they became very useful tools for assassination and murder. Which brings us to King Mithridates VI. There was this state called Pontus, It was in Asia Minor, in the northeastern corner of what we call Turkey today. Mithridates VI was the son of Mithridates V, as you might expect. And he claimed to be descended from famous figures like Alexander the Great and King Darius of Persia. And he kind of saw himself as a product of both the East and the West, and as a bulwark between the two. He dedicated himself to preventing the Roman Republic from spreading through Asia Minor into the Middle East. And he was seen as a hero of his people, and he fought several wars, the Mithridatic Wars, with Rome, which he won. And in fact, one of the generals of the Roman army at the time, Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, a.k.a. Pompey the Great, was so infuriated by Mithridates' ability to evade capture on the battlefield, that he went to the Roman Senate and got them to grant him sweeping military and political powers just to deal with Mithridates'. The laws were called the Manilan Laws, and they troubled a lot of Roman politicians. And they presaged, to some extent, the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. Even though the Senate eventually chose not to follow through on some of the legal promises they'd made to Pompey. Ultimately, Pompey allied himself with Caesar and another military leader, Crassus. And you probably know how Caesar's rise to power goes. But back to Mithridates VI... The thing about him was that he was terrified of being assassinated with poison. And that's because he rose to power after his father, King Mithridates V, died of adult-onset early assassination by poison. And so, Mithridates became an expert in poisons. He made a huge study of poisons in what we today would call toxicology. That's not all, though. He regularly dosed himself with many of the well-known poisons of his day, or so the story goes, in an attempt to make himself immune to poison. He even developed a particular mixture of poisonous substances that worked as an antidote to certain poisons. It was called the mithridatic cure, or mithridate. Today, mithridate is a medical term that refers to a drug that functions as a general-purpose antidote. See, Most antidotes are pretty specific. You need the right drug to counteract the right poison. But a mithridate is an antidote that counteracts a broad spectrum of drugs. Mithridates might sound paranoid. But remember, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. And they really were out to get him. And he knew it. At one point, several of his friends and courtiers conspired to assassinate the king. But one of them got cold feet and turned informer. He asked Mithridates to come hide under his couch and listen in while the conspirators made their plans. Once Mithridates had heard the assassins plotting, he had them tortured and executed. Now there is some irony in how Mithridates died an irony that the Roman army was quick to poke fun at to discredit Mithridates' status as a heroic opponent of the great Roman Republic. Now, thanks to a lot of political maneuvering, the seizure of power by certain Roman generals, and a slave riot or two, particularly one involving some guy named Spartacus, things got very complicated. And in the end... The tide of war turned in favor of the Romans and Mithridates found himself fighting to reclaim big chunks of his kingdom and rebuilding his army. It's a long story, and it's called the Second Mithridatic War and the Third Mithridatic War. It's a very long story, but it ends with Mithridates leading an army he borrowed back into his own kingdom of Pontus, retaking it and then immediately being betrayed and run out by former allies. And when he ran to another group of allies on the Black Sea, he found they'd turned against him too. Alone and surrounded by enemies, Mithridates decided he and his daughters would not be taken alive. He poisoned his daughters and then dosed himself with the same poison to at least deny the Romans the chance to capture him. And then nothing happened. Mithridates didn't die. Apparently, he'd made himself immune to his poisonous brew after all. At least that's the popular version of the story. The more likely explanation was that he didn't have enough poison for a man of his constitution after he gave most of it to his daughters. It doesn't matter. In the end, King Mithridates had a servant kill him. And the Romans spread the story that he the master of poison, was such a screw-up he couldn't even poison himself and had to beg the Romans for a merciful death, which they magnanimously granted. And the Romans hated him so much they made sure his name never got the same renown in history as people like Hannibal, despite the fact that he was probably one of Rome's greatest nemesis. But despite the story of Mithridates, we should caution all of our listeners not to dose themselves with poisonous substances in order to build up an immunity. It does work with some poisons and toxins in the same way that vaccines help the body build an immunity or resistance to certain bacteria and viruses. It triggers an immune response that trains the body. But many poisons and venoms and toxins get around the body's various defenses in all sorts of different ways. And some of them do their damage slowly over time if allowed to build up. For example, heavy metals like mercury and lead can build up gradually over time in the muscles or in the brain. The body can't flush them out. Small amounts won't necessarily do much damage. But continued exposure over long periods leads to a dangerous buildup. Of course, these days, it's easy to identify a poison. That's thanks to various laws requiring poisonous substances to be labeled as such. And one of the most well-known identifiers of poison is actually the skull and bones symbol that we discussed in our last episode. Or, as it came to be known, the death's head. Now, we talked about how the skull and crossbones maybe got associated with piracy and what it meant before that. But after the so-called golden age of piracy that we discussed the symbol went into a decline. It vanished from the public consciousness for the most part. However, it wasn't completely gone from all awareness. See, it survived in various guilds and societies that had ties to old traditions or to the occult. And it even showed up as the symbol of a number of secret societies. By the 1800s, it had become common for apothecaries and chemists to use the Skull and Bones icon on bottles that contained dangerous substances, particularly smaller bottles where large labels like the word poison would not fit. Remember you are mortal, the warning basically said, and the stuff in this bottle will remove you from this mortal coil. In the 1850s in America, with the passage of several laws concerned with public health and safety, and you can hear more about them in our episode about mountebanks, the American Pharmaceutical Association decreed that anything that a consumer might get a hold of that contained poison should be clearly marked as such. Specifically, they said it should be distinctly labeled with the word poison or with a death's head symbol conspicuously printed. In 1857... The APA revised the 1853 decree to further require that such markings always appear in red ink. And in 1868, companies like William Heydrich of New York City began to offer druggists custom labels for their bottling needs. Thus, the symbols quickly became standardized. Soon thereafter, states and the federal government adopted these standards as laws, and the skull and bones for poison became ubiquitous across the United States, Europe, and much of the rest of the world. And thus, it became easy to tell, at a glance, that something was poisonous. If only it was as easy to tell if someone might join us for a rousing game of D&D. Because, honestly, after three or four decades, we're kind of tired of the Princess Bride quotes. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.